0: What happens when vultures go the way of the dodo bird?
1: When we lose out of an important uh, keystone species, we also pay a price. And that price is not negligible, it's not something trivial that's easy to bounce back from and substitute. These are potentially very big and real costs.
0: Welcome to the pie, I'm your host, Tess Viglund. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day seen through the lens of economics. The pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. And in this episode, we're looking at what happens when one large, ugly, nasty, but incredibly important bird experiences such a severe drop in population that it ends up affecting mortality rates in humans. A.L. Frank is an environment economist. He studies the intersection of economics and ecology and teaches at the Harris School of Public Policy. His latest research explores the social and economic cost of species collapse in India, where a mass vulture die-off may serve as a warning for the future. A.L. Frank, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So as you may know, here on The Pi, we deal in a lot of numbers. We review high-minded economic theory. And so let me just take a look here and remind myself what you and I are going to talk about today. And let's see my notes here. Um, Vultures?
1: Yes, vultures. Or more broadly, the natural world.
0: Right. Not the kind of vultures that feed on Wall Street carcasses?
1: Not the same, uh, but similar connotations, maybe.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, before anything else, um, uh, let me ask you, why is an economist studying species collapse? Isn't that the purview of ecologists?
1: Ecologists definitely have a lot to say on the topic of biodiversity losses. But I think that we as economists, and more broadly, social scientists, should also be very interested in understanding what happens when we lose species and what type of impact that has on human well-being.
0: Well, let's start by having you take us through why you decided to look at the vulture population in India uh, to study the effect of species collapse on broader society. Uh, to talk about the role of the vulture before we hear about kind of what happened to it, why is the vulture important?
1: Vultures are a great example of what ecologists consider to be a keystone species, which more colloquially you you can think of as species that hold the ecosystem together. A more rigorous definition might be they have a really big role in the ecosystem, much bigger than their relative population might reflect, And if we lose them, if we take out that piece of the puzzle, we end up potentially suffering a really big degradation in the ecosystem functioning. And vultures are as important to qualify to be a keystone species because they have evolved along evolutionary timelines to be really good at what they do, which is scavenging, meaning removing dead animals from the environment. So they're a garbage collector? Exactly. You can think of vultures as the fantastic, amazing environmental custodians and sanitizers. In other words, you can think of vultures as spraying bleach over the environment, as the garbage collectors, as the cleanup crew, and they do it all lovingly and freely, and they do it very well.
0: Did you just say they spray bleach all over the environment?
1: The reason I said that is they're able to consume dead animals safely, something that I don't recommend to anyone else listening to the podcast.
0: Good caution.
1: (laughs) Yes. There's a reason why there's a caution at the bottom of each menu about raw meat. Vultures can ignore that warning because their stomachs are much more acidic than ours, about 10 to 100 times more acidic. That means that basically whatever pathogen or bacteria ends up in their stomach, that's their terminal stop, end of the road for them. So in a way, that acidic stomach is kind of like bleach, but instead of spraying it on the environment, the environment gets filtered through that.
0: So they're decontaminators. Exactly. Yeah. And why specifically look at vultures in India?
1: Well, specifically in India for two key reasons. One is that there were a lot of them all throughout the country, and India has a massive livestock population, over 500 million animals, larger than we think any other country, at least that we know of. And in that country, we also have these social norms that are really important about how to handle meat. Hindus won't consume cows and Muslims won't consume meat that was not slaughtered according to Halal. So, there's this big sector of livestock agriculture. There are these cultural components about how to handle dead animals and you need vultures to clean up after dead animals because there's no other uh, infrastructure in place to do so. That was kind of like the first reason. The second reason why to look at vultures in India is that they unfortunately went from 30 to 50 million birds to just a few thousands, if not a few hundreds, left in the wild in just a few short years.
0: Okay, so uh, let's talk about what started happening in the late 1990s, which is what ecologists would call a catastrophic collapse in the vulture species there. You you just told us how bad it was, but why did it happen?
1: In the 70s, we introduced a painkiller with the active ingredient by the name of diclofenac. We might know it under the brand names of Vavaren or Valtaren. I want to just say it's totally safe to use in humans. If you have it in your medicine cabinet, it's fine.
0: It's very common.
1: Very common, really effective. One of the most used painkillers in many places in the world, it's great. The problem was that in the 90s, at the same time that its patent was expiring, the generic pharmaceutical industry in India started producing very cheap and potent versions of diclofenac painkillers. That lowered the price of, of diclofenac to a level that made it then viable for livestock farmers to start using and administering to their cattle. And it didn't necessarily have to be marketed as diclofenic for cows or diclofenic for sheep. It could have just be, here's an injectable version of diclofenic and you can administer it to your livestock animals.
0: And it was safe for livestock animals. It was
1: safe and it exactly, it worked great. Um, And farmers were able to treat inflammations and fevers and other uh, other diseases or problems that their livestock experienced, it was potentially very good for the farmers, very good for the livestock. The problem started when the livestock died, was put in what are many, many livestock animal landfills that are placed at the outskirts of a village or a city, where farmers bring the dead animals and just leave them for the vultures to come down and clean up the mess. Even a small amount of residue in the carcass would mean kidney failure and certain death within weeks for vultures.
0: Wow! So all these vultures are dying off. Presumably, people are seeing this happen. Uh, were there any theories at the time of what was happening, or how long did it take to figure it out?
1: We think that the first real aha moment of something is happening out in the wild was in 1996 when one field ecologist started asking other colleagues, I'm seeing half of the birds at my study site dead. Is anyone else seeing this? What is going on? And then everyone started saying, oh yes, this is happening at our study sites as well. We just thought it's a local problem, not like some general pattern. And at that point, everyone sort of understood, oh wait, something is happening to the vultures there are different theories ranging from wildlife diseases, overuse of agricultural chemicals, even up to conspiracy theories that some Western countries are poisoning vultures to uh, try and, and, I don't know, get it India. Everyone thought like potentially many different things could be happening. Only in 2004, when Oaks et al. came out with their paper in Nature, did we have really good evidence, kind of like the smoking gun, it's diclofenac that's causing this.
0: And at that point, what was the loss of the vulture population?
1: At that point, there were a shadow of their past levels. That's like even in 2000, they were down by about three orders of magnitude than their previous uh, equilibrium baseline levels.
0: So basically what's happened is that the garbage collector has died off. So it's not there anymore. It can't decontaminate what are still these landfills filled with dead animals. So walk us through some of the knock-on effects that you found. How does that collapse of the vulture population start making its way into a broader problem? What do you see?
1: When you lose vultures, two big things start to happen. One, someone's gonna walk up, step up, and re- to- try to replace them. In the case of India, as in the case of many other places when you lose vultures, the immediate kind of like substitution or the immediate other animals that will try to fill out the niche are dogs and rats. They too can scavenge on dead animals. They don't have to, unlike vultures that that's their only food source. And dogs and rats are not fantastic at what they do as scavengers. They, they don't some spray the, bleach. They don't spray bleach. They don't clean up the body down to the bone like vultures. Vultures can descend on a carcass and clean it up to the bone within 40 minutes, which is incredible.
0: 40 minutes?
1: Yes. Wow. Dogs and rats, not so great. They will leave a lot of flesh living, rotting behind That's a problem because then when you get rain and surface runoff, all of those bacteria find their way potentially into drinking water. That's one issue. The other issue is that having more food for rats and dogs also means having more rats and dogs. And they're not amazing because they can spread infectious diseases to humans. Vultures don't really come into contact with people, dogs and rats do. Dogs in particular are problematic because they're a reservoir of rabies. And animal bites and rabies in India is a massive problem. So you potentially now have more dogs running around, more animal bites, more rabies, and more polluted water. The way I like to explain it to people is if you were in your apartment trying to vacuum and it, your vacuum broke down and suddenly I knock at the door and I show up, here's a broom, how about that? Will this do? And, it, and you would be like, well, this is not great. You know, I had a vacuum, you're offering me a broom, but I would counter and say, huh, but the broom might also give you rabies. And you'd be like, wait, that's what uh, just yeah, happened. Yeah, I don't want that broom. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, so it, to summarize in short, you lose vultures, you get more rats and dogs, you also potentially get more rabies and more animal bites. And because these bodies either find their way into water uh, bodies or a surface runoff will carry pollution into water bodies, you get more contaminated water to drink.
0: Were there specific parts of India where this happened more than others? Is this a, a more rural issue than urban?
1: That's a great question. So in India, the way that we classify rural and urban doesn't exactly map to how we think about the big cities of the world and rural, suburban, or pastoral landscapes. It's more about the population density and what share of the population is working in agriculture. It actually is the places that the census classifies as urban that are more at risk because they're more likely to have a big enough livestock sector that would justify having an animal landfill Hmm. at the outskirts. But to your question, this wasn't shared, this problem was not uniform across India because the vultures, their habitats were not uniformly distributed across the country. There were places that were just much more suitable as a habitat for these vulture species than others and that's what we really get at, trying to use that suitability and that massive collapse to try and disentangle what exactly happened to mortality and water quality and rabies.
0: So you had a natural control group. Exactly. Okay, so then all of these knock-on effects ultimately make their way up the chain to humans, as you said, most likely in the water supply, but also lots of other issues. And you go on to estimate how many additional deaths were likely caused by vulture collapse. What was that?
1: We estimate that the increase in all-cause mortality leads to about 100,000 additional deaths a year relative to the population in our main sample. When we use a specific value of statistical life, we find that this translates to mortality damages close to $70 billion per year.
0: So, in economic terms, the collapse of this species is a $70 billion problem?
1: Exactly. Very meaningful to human well-being when considered from the angle of the value of mortality reduction.
0: Was there ever any effort to restore the vulture population before it kind of got to the point of collapse? And do we know how much that would have cost? So basically what I'm asking you is, did anyone do a cost-benefit analysis of trying to stop this problem and then decide it was too expensive?
1: As it was happening, it was hard to to stop it because they didn't fully understand the cause. They didn't really understand what was driving the collapse, so they didn't know they didn't need to ban that painkiller. In 2006, India placed a ban on veterinary use of diclofenac It wasn't effectively enforced, so there was still a lot of veterinary use. More recently, there have been these battles in the court system to try and completely ban its manufacturing and use altogether. It's still being litigated. What has happened during this time is that there have been a few vulture sanctuaries that have been put together to try and preserve just a minimal viable population that can then be used to restore the populations one day when the environment becomes safe again. Those are very expensive to run. I don't have exact numbers to give you on just how expensive, but what makes them ex- makes them expensive is you need to feed the vultures with high-quality clean meat that you absolutely know does not have any residue of diclofenac. And that is very costly to do day after day after day for two, three decades.
0: So if we zoom out on this question about vultures, um, one of the bigger questions that you're addressing here is the, really the cost of losing specific species, right? Why has that been historically hard to quantify?
1: That's a great question. There've been many challenges with trying to get a good answer to this. I think that one of the biggest challenges we face is that we just don't have good data on the number of species and their population levels. I often joke and say that animals are just terrible survey respondents. We don't <laughs> see them in the census. We don't know what they're doing. We don't know when they change address or an occupation. They're you know, just willy nilly all hobbies. over the place. Exactly. <laughs> Like animals, what, where are they, how many are there, and what are they doing is a really big question for which we have not so great answers. That basic measurement problem makes it very hard to then try and estimate anything about the role that they play in the environment and the impacts that they have on human well-being. The other is that even if we did have good quantification of how many animals there are out in the wild, we would still need to be able to have something that has a causal interpretation, we would still need some natural experiments and or just an experiment. Another challenge that we face is that even if we do have good data on animals, we need some variation that can allow us to make some causal interpretation. That's that's problematic. No institutional review board will approve for you to go out and randomly manipulate wildlife populations at a large scale. Let me kill some vultures here. Let me not kill them there. Let's see what happens. Doesn't scream ethical to you, does it? Even if feasible. Um, So that's another big challenge. So that also means that randomized controlled trials are just not a good tool to try and answer this question. And with the combination of these challenges, we kind of have to rely on these natural experiments. Something either really bad or really good, usually it's more of the bad flavor, happens that we can then use to approximate what would have, what would have been a randomized control trial or close to.
0: I found it interesting how you noted in your research that, um, that vultures are basically not as charismatic as, say, polar bears or tigers or pandas. So uh, arguing for their conservation is, is really a lot more difficult despite their extreme and practical utility.
1: Often when I present the paper, I start by saying, listen, our colleagues in the natural sciences are telling us we are losing species left and right. We should be protecting them more, conserving and restoring more. This raises an important question of how do we allocate scarce conservation resources And one way to go about that is let's protect the warm, mega-charismatic, fuzzy animals like tigers, panda bears, and so on. The
0: cute ones.
1: Exactly, the cute, the fuzzy, the one we want to run and hug.
0: Which you shouldn't do, by the way.
1: No, no, that is dangerous in many cases. Don't hug a polar bear. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it, It could work if those species are also the ones that perform important roles in the ecosystem.
0: If they were keystone.
1: If they were keystone. But not every important species is necessarily charismatic. Vultures are a fantastic example. And at the beginning of the paper, we have this quote attributed to Charles Darwin observing a vulture of the deck of the Beagle, which is simply disgusting. Okay? No one ever thinks I want to hug a vulture. That's not what they evoke in us.
0: Nope. So that just makes it a lot more difficult to advocate for them, right?
1: Makes it harder to advocate, makes it harder to think that they have some value to us as a society, especially when we think of vultures in not the best and most positive associations in, in folklore.
0: So what would you hope this research does to the conversation around species collapse? Um, And and I suppose even the conversation around climate change and, and habitat loss. What are some of the global policy implications here?
1: I think the biggest contribution we're hoping we're making with this paper is demonstrating that losing animals or losing biodiversity and species or Experiencing degradation in ecosystems doesn't stay within the boundaries of the ecosystem. The natural world is not completely separate and independent from what we experience in our socioeconomic systems. When we lose out of an important uh, keystone species, we also pay a price. And that price is non-negligible, it's not something trivial that's easy to bounce back from and substitute. These are potentially very big and real costs. In a way, I hope that this paper, along with other similar papers, helps to contribute to our understanding about what ecologists mean when they say biodiversity is happening, it is very problematic, and it could have catastrophic impacts for humanity. What exactly can happen? How big is it? How bad is it? For which specific outcomes? For which specific species? That's a job for an entire literature, but we can get at it using these type of unfortunate and extreme events, but we can at least learn something from them about the importance of scavengers, keystone species, and so on.
0: And the role of economics here in that conversation is, I suppose, at its most basic that we're all putting a value on how much we're willing to do, how much money we're willing to spend to save these species, and yet we may not know or understand all of the ramifications behind those cost-benefit analyses, right?
1: I completely agree. I think that very often we have at least a good understanding in terms of an order of magnitude, what is going to be the cost of delaying economic development or what is going to be the cost of paying for conservation or declaring a protected area. We don't have a good understanding of what the benefits are going to be. Without these types of exercises, we're not going to implicitly assume that the benefit is infinite. We're going to implicitly assume that it's zero. So we need to understand what's the benefit we get from vultures so that we can compare it then to what's the cost of recovering them, protecting them and restoring them. And you can take that to any species out there. What's the value of bats when they eat insects? What's the value of whales when they fertilize the oceans? What's the value of bees when they pollinate our crops? And so on and so on. To your question on how this relates to climate change, many species are going to be negatively affected by climate change, either because they're going to have to migrate or because their interactions with other species they're in competition with are going to move in a direction where they're going to experience a collapse and they might not be able to find a new suitable habitat. Climate change is just but one of the threats to biodiversity, where habitat loss and invasive species and overexploitation and wildlife trade makes up the other big threats that they face.
0: So I have to ask, what is the situation with vultures in India now? Uh, They discovered the cause here in 2004. Has the population started to come back at all?
1: Unfortunately, not so much. There are some areas where there is some recovery, especially as newer alternative drugs become available and farmers substitute to them, but we are not seeing anything close to a recovery of, of vultures, and the very alarming and sad fact is that even a small recovery that takes 10 years, 20 years to build up can be completely erased with just a little bit of spillover of diclofenac back into the environment.
0: AL Frank. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: The Pie is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. And you can sign up for our newsletter there as well. And, of course, you can subscribe to The Pie on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI communications team. I'm Tess Vigland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.